The last time I spoke about politics in any depth was about six years ago, and um, uh, I was speaking at an event in Christchurch called Salt and Light, which was run by the Anglicans, and um, interestingly, most uh, hardcore left-leaning kind of student folks, um, and they invited me um, which they put me as the right wing person, which I was like, sure, man, like whatever. Um, anyway, what if, for whatever reason, they wanted me to talk about, you know, abortion and a few of these other things. So I was like, yeah, I'm happy to talk about some of that stuff in this um, in the students gathering, a couple hundred people at this event. And um, and the day I was speaking at that thing, during the day I was in Auckland for something. Can't remember what it was, but it was in Auckland. Uh, and now this was the glory, glory years where um, I had Koru membership. Come on. Now, before anyone thinks Luke's joke was serious, uh, the reality was that the only reason I had Koru membership is because my father-in-law at that time was traveling internationally just hardcore. And so if you reach a certain status within New Zealand, so most, like most of us are jade, it's real bottom, like... It's just, there's just nothing. There's no privileges. It's just jade. And then uh, occasionally you get to silver, which I got once back in the day. Uh, that's the, my high point. And then you hit gold, which just means you get koru. And then, then you get gold elite. Now, my father-in-law got gold elite. And if you get gold elite, you get to gift someone a koru membership. And he chose me. He chose me. Oh, I love my father-in-law. So I had, so I would turn up hours early to the Koru Lounge, and I would just pillage that little buffet. I, you know, I went so hard on that thing. And you know, like I realized after a few months, like you meant to act nonchalant because you've got money, you know, and you've got prestige. So you meant to act like another day in the Koru Lounge. But I couldn't contain my glee. It's all free in there, friends. Like I don't know if you've experienced it. It's free everything. And so, it, and it's all you can eat. They don't advertise it like that, but that's what I considered it to be. It was like a. <laughs> and so, on this day, I'm traveling back, the poorest guy in the Koru Lounge once more, and it was like rush hour and all the rest of it. And I saw a politician in the Koru Lounge, and I thought, how about I walk up to that politician and ask him if he'll introduce me to the, to the group I'm going to be speaking to tonight? And so I wandered up to this politician and I, and I asked him, would you do an introduction? I explained what I was going to do. Could you do the introduction? So I'll play you that video. You'll have to look at the screen. He speaks quite quickly. But um, this is, um, this is uh, Grant, any second now. This is, um, here we go. Minister, and good luck to the people who are at Salt and Light. Sam is speaking with you tonight. He's going to have a wonderful evening. I hope you enjoy the debate on politics and I hope you can make more sense of it than most of us do. Hey, yeah, come on. How good's that? <laughs> Now, can I just say the reaction in the room was slightly more muted because I thought I had, I mean, where else in the world can you bowl on up to your prime minister and say, this is the little gig I'm speaking at tonight. Can you do my introduction? <laughs> what a legend, John Key. All right. Now, we're going to, I want to talk about, uh, obviously, the politics in the kingdom of God. And this shouldn't be an unusual topic for, to, for us to talk about. Jesus, every time he talked about the kingdom of God, made a political statement. Every title that was attributed to Jesus was a political title. Like the whole idea that, you know, Christians shouldn't go into this space is ridiculous. This is a, 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 an important conversation for us to have. And this is why I'm, I've been like, oh, I can't wait to talk about this stuff because this is healthy. Like anytime there's something that we are avoiding big time, that's unhealthy. 
in terms of having some honest chats around it. So I've been looking forward to this because it's like the sign of a mature community is that we can have these sorts of discussions. And uh, so let's, before we do anything, my main thing that I want to do today is outline a biblical vision of the kingdom of God. Like for us to to get our heads around politics and the kingdom of God, we really must have a very, very robust, very clear understanding of what we mean by the kingdom of God. This was Jesus' primary focus when he spoke and when he came and ministered. It it was was the, the kingdom of God. So we're going to look at how do we have a biblical vision of the kingdom of God, of the lordship of Jesus, and of the mission of the church in such times, in political times, in very divided times that we're in in today. Um, If you haven't listened to the last two talks on the kingdom of God, I'd love you to do that. Um, Jen last week talked about the kingdom of God being very subversive like mustard seed, like it just starts spreading. We can give testimony to that. God's got into you a little bit, hasn't he? Jesus has come and captivated you. And what happens if you, if you stay true to that journey, he starts spreading through all the areas of your life, right? It's very sneaky like that. It starts spreading and it's like he's... Over the years, it's just like he spreads. And it's the same in society. Like uh, in the early church, there's a small number of folks. And then as, uh, as the kingdom of God spreads today, billions of people profess that Jesus is Lord. I can go to the Philippines or Cambodia or, or South America and, and I'll have brothers and sisters in Christ. If you look at uh, education and healthcare and, and, and the uh, inequality issues and the marginalized, the church, Church at its best has been the pioneers and the innovators and the people that have gone into those places. The kingdom of God has advanced throughout the, the thousand, couple of thousand years since Jesus started speaking these words. Amen? So cool. So I want to talk about uh, the, the kingdom of God, the centrality of the kingdom of God. It's really interesting to see how in the four gospels they begin their engagement with Jesus' ministry. In every gospel it opens with some sort of declaration about the kingdom of God. Actually, just before I do, I'm going to be leaning on my notes more than I normally do, okay, just because of the minefield we're trying to navigate. So, uh, so forgive me for that. So Jesus, uh, uh, every gospel opens with a declaration about the kingdom of God. So in Matthew's gospels, Jesus' public ministry begins with the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is the prophet like Moses, reissuing the Torah from the mountaintop. Here's the kingdom values. Here's the kingdom culture. We're going to unpack a little bit of that more soon. In Mark's gospel, the first of the four gospels to be written, Jesus begins his public ministry by casting out a demon in the synagogue of Capernaum. The message is that it is time for the overthrow of Satan's kingdom. Satan, your time has come, see it. In Luke's gospel, Jesus' public ministry is first described as the announcement of the arrival of Jubilee, the day of divine favor, and he preaches this at his hometown synagogue in Nazareth. The the message is that it's time for God's favor to fall on all the people. In John's gospel, Jesus begins his public ministry by turning water into wine at the wedding feast in Cana. The message is that it is time for the long-awaited feast of God to begin. Now, now every time we talk about any of this stuff, you've, you've got to remember who's saying it. This is, we believe as Christians, God has come in the flesh and announced there is a new kingdom at play in the world. That's powerful stuff. Jesus' single message was the arrival of the kingdom of God. Everything Jesus ever taught or did was an announcement of an enactment of the new government arriving on earth from heaven. Brian Zahn says it like this. 
What does the kingdom of God look like? It looks like Jesus. It looks like the sick being healed, the poor being fed, the demonized being delivered, the dead being raised. It looks like outsiders given a seat at the table and the hypocritical gatekeepers given their comeuppance. It looks like forgiveness for sinners and a feast for all. If you can embrace the newness, it looks like a party where water turns to wine. If you resist the newness, it looks like judgment day when the whip comes down and the tables are flipped. As the great theologian Origen of Alexandria said, Jesus is the kingdom in person. So if it doesn't look like Jesus, it's not the kingdom of God. And if it's not the kingdom of God, we should never pledge our ultimate allegiance to it. So I'd add it's the kingdom of rest. It's a kingdom of external and internal joy. It's a kingdom of hope. It's a kingdom of healing. And how does this kingdom move forward? It does not move forward with politics or weapons or war through all these conventional methods of power. It, it moves forward through utter powerlessness. It moves forward through the crucifixion, ultimately, of a Galilean Jew who preached the kingdom of God. And this king, our King Jesus, has a coronation. And this coronation is not on a throne, but on a cross. He heals the world by revealing the cruciform love of God. And he breaks the cycle of retaliation. And he shows us what God is like and how the world is healed. In Philippians 2, a familiar passage, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So when we declare that Jesus is Lord, uh, the apostles pause imagery, like Jim was saying last week, is that we become citizens of this kingdom. Like when you got baptised, I hope you've been baptised. If you haven't, would love to baptise you. It's like your citizenship ceremony into the kingdom of God. Like, up, you now, primarily your identity as a citizen of the kingdom of God, a soldier for the kingdom of God, and an ambassador of the kingdom of God. And so I want to suggest that the focus that the church has had on getting people saved means that we've got lots of folks who have prayed a prayer or who perhaps go to church occasionally but have not made Jesus Lord of their life and begun to understand they are now in an entirely different place in terms of their citizenship. They're firstly citizens of the kingdom of God. And so this leads people to still be convinced that whoever is in government is how God moves in the world. When actually those with an understanding of the kingdom see that this is where the power lies. And when you get baptised, you're baptised into this kingdom. Here again, Brian's on. The most radical thing about the early Christians wasn't that they worshipped Jesus as God. The Greco-Roman world was awash with gods. Indeed, from the very beginning, Christians did believe that Jesus was God. But the radical and dangerous thing about them was that they worshipped Jesus as an emperor. This is what was meant when they confessed Jesus as Lord. The title Son of God, King of Kings, Saviour of the World, Prince of Peace and Lord of All were already in circulation as imperial titles on Roman coins when the Christians began reappropriating them in their worship of a Galilean Jew who had been crucified by a Roman emperor, governor. This was dangerous. This is why from time to time bishops were hauled before Roman magistrates and some Christians ended up facing gladiators and wild beasts in the arena. It wasn't the religion of the Christians that got them into trouble per se, but the political implications of their religion. Because the Christians belonged to a different cult than the Roman Empire, they developed a different culture and became a counterculture movement. A counterculture that the authorities sometimes deemed threatening and periodically sought to violently suppress. 
So Jesus, as he's announcing there is a kingdom of God that's arrived in the world, he's announcing that when there were other kingdoms at play, the kingdom of Herod underneath the kingdom of Caesar. So that he's in this place with strong government. In fact, it's empire. Like, you know, we throw our lollies about, you know, our government. Oh, you know, it's like we aren't under an empire. This is when all this stuff was written, right? Anyway, tangent, stay focused. So 1 Peter 2 verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So what's happening here is that Peter's saying, actually, the there should be a sense if you're following Jesus as Lord where you feel like a bit of a foreigner in your own country, a bit of an exile in your own country. I've talked to a lot of people, millennial kind of age, you know, 35s and unders, who feel politically homeless. Christians who feel politically homeless. I'm like, that's a healthy sign. That's a healthy sign. Because a politically, if you feel politically homeless, that's because you are a foreigner and an exile in this country. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, uh, we, a couple, two years ago now, I think it was, we um, as a church uh, leaned into learning Māori together. And, um, and what I loved as we learned our pepeha with Joanne was that um, she encouraged us to start our pepeha by saying, Ko kawara te manga, ke wairoa te awa, ko rongapai te waka, ko ihu karai te te tangata. Before I say anything around where I've come from, here's my home. Here's my home. Calvary's my mountain. The spirit is the water. The good news is the is the is the canoe, is the walker, and and Jesus Christ, he's he's my that's where I'm connected to Tangata. And then I can start talking about Scotland and the boats and all the rest of it <laughs> that my ancestors came from. But I love it. First and foremost, this is where I, my citizenship lies. Jesus said to Herod, my kingdom is not of this world. It's not a kingdom that finds its roots in human systems. It comes from the God of love. Jesus commands his disciples to seek first the kingdom of God. Stop stressing about all the stuff in the world. Seek first the kingdom of God. That, if there's nothing else you hear over the next month, let's just resonate with that. Seek first the kingdom of God. That's the number one priority. Now, here's where I'm going to start pushing you. If you don't have an understanding of the kingdom of God and that God himself has come in Jesus to initiate this new humanity, then the only way you can shape a nation is through political process. We have a functional atheism often in the church where we pretend to have faith, but we bow down to the idol of power and politics because we've lost a vision of the kingdom of God. There's, there's the first grenade drop. If the kingdom of God is not perceived as a viable alternative society, then competition for conventional political power seems the only option for influencing the world. This is a tragedy. This breaks my heart. This is why I'm so fired up about preaching this is because I want to call the church back to its home. And it's not in some political party or under some leader as having such a vision for the kingdom of God. It's indeed like a pearl of great price that you'll do anything to see spread and come. Amen. Cool, getting warmed up now. 
So like, there's nothing wrong with having political passion. Let's not pendulum swing here. We're going to talk about referendum issues and we're going to, and you know, I want you to vote wisely and to be thoughtful about it, but it's not where our hope lies. Let's chill out here. Tim Keller says this, when either, this is in the States. Now, I am going to talk a little bit about the States because it influences the world, right? Big influence, you've got to talk about it. So Tim Keller, who's coming from this position, but the thinking's getting influenced here in New Zealand. He says, when either party wins an election, a certain percentage of the losing side talks openly about leaving the country. They're talking about Christians here. Again, just before we dive further, I'm this, all the talks to the Christians. This is an in-house talk. I'm not trying to tell New Zealand what to do. I'm trying to speak to the Christians as a pastor here in New Zealand, okay? So, so, the, so and Tim Keller's talking the same here. When either party wins an election, a certain percentage of the losing side talks openly about leaving the country. They all want to move here or Canada, it turns out, I reckon, anyway. They become agitated and fearful. Thank you, tennis resident American. They become agitated and fearful for the future. They have put the kind of hope in their political leaders and policies that was once reserved for God and for the work of the gospel. When their political leaders are out of power, they experience a death. They believe that if the policies and power, their policies and power, not, uh, people are not in power, everything will pull, fall apart. In our politics, we believe that opponents are not simply mistaken; they're absolutely evil. Right? There's this just crazy division that's going on. So to the extent that we place our trust in exercising power over others, we stop trusting our mandate to exercise power under others through sacrificial service. Paul in 2 Timothy 2 verse 4 warns us not to get too involved in the affairs of the world, including its politics, but to focus on pleasing our commander. And that soldier metaphor. A commander tells us not to trust the power over mentality that politics exercises, then instead to follow his example of exercising power under people by loving and sacrificing for them. The example Jesus shows us is that citizens of an earthly country, we should respect and obey our rulers. However, we ultimately belong to another kingdom which does not come about by force. By force. <laughs> or the force, or the, yeah, whatever, Star Wars. Um, I didn't sign up when I when I just when I when Jesus captivated me invaded my life. I didn't sign up for some nice little Sunday club that meets once together to you know have a nice little vibey moment. Like I I love it, but there's something about the church. The reason I'm a pastor is there's something about a radical countercultural community that are faithful witnesses to the love and lordship of Jesus Christ that really gets my blood moving. That's why I signed up. People who don't go to church, who are the church, who are the body of Christ, who, who, who uh, pour out their lives for the last, the least, the lost, who have a deep relationship with our Heavenly Father, who pray dangerous prayers, who live lives of passion, who are filled with integrity and civility and kindness and mercy and peace and joy, who are coming up with countercultural, radical ways of bringing about God's kingdom from heaven to earth now, that they, they believe they've been entrusted with the keys of the kingdom to unlock something of that kingdom of God here on earth. That's, that's what I signed up for. That's why I've been frothing about the series because this is an opportunity for us as a church to reclaim our identity as citizens of the kingdom who have been given keys to the kingdom to unlock something of that kingdom here on earth. Not through power, but through love, humble service, following the Sermon on the Mount, following the way of Jesus and subverting society and bringing about the kingdom that way. Uh, Bruxy Cavey says, we don't have to invest our energies to get the state to act more Christian. We've got enough work on our plate just to get the church to act more Christian. 
If you look at the Sermon on the Mount, it's challenging. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. When Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, it was like this is the culture of the kingdom. So when Jesus said to his followers, your influence, influence will be directly related to your display of mercy. Now listen, is the public face of Christianity in New Zealand that Christians are merciful people? That if you go to church and meet Christians and you engage with them in a public sphere or online, they are merciful people. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Is the public face of Christianity in New Zealand that Christians are all about making peace, bringing down dividing walls, bringing people together, figuring out how we can get along, how we can build a more inclusive, more welcoming society. This is like, we've, we've got to recapture a vision of the Sermon on the Mount and of, of the manifesto of the kingdom and to, uh, and to give our lives to it. The biggest threat I would contend to Christianity in New Zealand comes from inside the church from Christians who don't look, or like, who don't look like or sound remotely close to Jesus' description of what his followers ought to look like in the Sermon on the Mount. Rich Nathan says it like this, What the world needs most is not another political agenda from the church, Surveys tell us the reason so many people, especially millennials, are leaving the church is because Christians act like another political interest group fighting for their piece of the pie. What the world needs most is an attractive alternative to the fallen world of politics. The world is desperate for a model of the good life embodied in a community of people. So, So this is going to push some of you. There are streams within Christianity that have so grasped this that they've concluded they just don't vote. Uh, the Mennonites and the Anabaptists. And this is why. They say, we are, now, this is pushing you, <laughs> it's all right. But you've got to respect that they haven't come here through some passionate sermon. They've come here through hard theological work and have robustly, and, and this isn't compulsory in the Anabaptist uh, Mennonite thing. This is the vibe they go for, right? So it's like you can vote, obviously, if you're part of their crew. But uh, he says, this is why we are part of Christ's kingdom and our first allegiance is to him, not to any earthly government. Jesus told Pilate, like we read before, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but my kingdom is from another place. The kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of Christ don't mix well. In almost any issue one could name, they stated goals and purposes of Christ stand in diametric opposition to the goals of any earthly national government. And so we choose not to become involved in the purposes and plans of any government, even to the extent of voting. We would rather sway our nation through prayers than polls and enact change by our own hard work and quiet service than in a voting booth. Now that's gonna that's pushing it, I understand. And they also I've been reading a lot recently, and partly as well, they don't want to have blood on their hands. So they say any party that you vote for will have and I've done, as I've said, a lot of work looking at more than I've ever done to my shame and historically in terms of voting. But in preparation for this, I've done a lot of work looking at policies across the board on all the major major parties and minor parties. And I can tell you from my perspective, you may disagree with me, that I agree with the fact that there's not one party that lines up completely with the Sermon on the Mount and the Kingdom Manifesto in Jesus. Every single one will call me to compromise in one way, shape or form. And so um, now my personal conviction is I'll push back on the Anabaptists and the Mennonites. I would encourage you to vote. I think it's a good thing to do. I think do it thoughtfully. But can, the only reason I mention this, because I'm trying to push your thinking here, is that, that robust, well-respected streams within Christianity have come to this position. 
And also you've got to remember that in the early church, this wasn't a big topic of conversation. They had an empire. They didn't get to vote at all, right? It's like, this is who's in charge, deal with it, you know? But I'm trying to make the point that our hope is not in a political party or leader. It is in Jesus Christ. And, this, and his kingdom is advancing. And so the early church, like I said a couple of weeks ago, when they were trying to work out, what do we call this group of people? One of the words that they, they came to, to own and, uh, and reappropriate was the word ecclesia. Now, as I said last time, but it bears repeating, uh, the Greeks had this whole idea that uh, people in cities would get together to discuss the business of the city. And that was called an ecclesia. And so the early church were like, we are the people of the kingdom, so let's get together and discuss the business of the kingdom. Oh, I love it. We are an ecclesia. And what's happened is that we've confused the church as the destination when the church just gets us where we all want to go, which is to see the kingdom of God advance. The church is like an airport. And like when, when an airport is grounded and there's fog and no planes can go, it looks like a very successful church. Wow, look at the numbers. But everyone's banging their heads against the wall because they didn't want to go to the airport. They wanted to go to the destination. And so we've got to reclaim the thing that the church just helps us as an ecclesia get to where we all long to go, which is to see the kingdom of God advance. And now I don't have time in this sermon, but every single one of you have a role to play in advancing the kingdom of God. And I'm going to talk about some case studies over the next month in terms of like, here's what it can look like on certain issues. Because particularly when it comes to any social issue that really bugs you in terms of policy, there is a counter, uh, there's an answer to that and the ecclesia working out how we can help. Like we've got to reclaim something of this vision. Jesus', Jesus kingdom was a very distinct kingdom. It wasn't meshed up with anything in terms of the, the ruling. To, it was a distinct kingdom, friends. It's, it stands on its own and we are those people. In Mark 10, Jesus called his disciples together and said, You know that those who regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. This is Jesus' words here. Let's hear it. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says they lead from the top down. That's how politics works. You elect the people, they lead, they legislate, and that's the way of coercive power. But it never impacts the heart. It never impacts the heart. Jesus says, not so with you. You lead from the bottom up through serving. And the goal is to see hearts transformed. Bruxy Cavey says this, we've been duped to think that you get the right people voted in, the right political party and power in place, and this is the way to bring about change. We, the church, want to fight for change, but we want to pour our energies into the alternative community that shows people a different way of being in this world and brings about change from the inside out that changes hearts one at a time. And so I want this place, this, this community, to be a refuge from all that stress out there to be a refuge, a place of peace where we rediscover the beauty of the bride and the body of Christ. The body of Christ we're called to be his hands and feet. This countercultural community that is to embody and live out the teachings of Jesus. When we grasp a vision of the kingdom of God, we can begin to approach politics with a bit more chill. When we grasp something of the kingdom of God, we can approach politics with a lot more chill because we're not looking to them to do what we know we as the ecclesia are called to do, right? 
And so therefore it's healthy and normal to, as I said, feel a little bit politically homeless. Uh, we understand that to vote for any political party will require compromise, but we want to vote in such a way as to bring about the best for our country or probably to aim a little bit more realistically the least harm. Right? That's how we want to choose to vote. So that's point one <laughs> of my 10-point sermon this Sunday. So... Uh, no, I'm joking, Charlotte, when you're watching this later, I'm joking. So there's so much more to say on that, but that'll come through every talk over the next month. Let's look at an issue, and, and what I'm going to do is do things like we're going to look at Christian ethics, Christian pastoral care. So how do we, how do we serve those that have fallen short of God's ethic, of the ethic, of the ideal? Public policy because you've got to remember, we have a view that God has created the world and everyone carries the image of God, but most people are secular humanists. So public policy around how we can, we can serve that Christian ethic, we'll have to get a bit clever about that, especially around how we communicate. And lastly, a vision for the kingdom for that very issue. Like, What can we do? What can, let's start putting the, you know, the mirror on us in terms of what we're called to carry. Ethics, pastoral care, public policy, kingdom of God, vision. So we're going to talk about that a whole lot. But, okay, let's keep moving on. So the first thing, kingdom of God. Second thing uh, is, that, um, is that I want to focus on is unity. Is unity. That we can have a unity in diversity. We are called to be the unified people. Let me just rip through a bunch of scriptures here. Paul uh, tells us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Ephesians verse 3. Which means the Holy Spirit is the great giver of unity. Uh, in one uh, Corinthians it says, In one Spirit we are all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we are all made to drink of one Spirit. Jesus' longest prayer in John 17 was that we would be unified. Where's the greatest attack of the enemy in the world today? Is disunity, is division, right? So that's huge. Jesus' longest prayer. May the God of endurance, uh, this is in Romans uh, 15, may the God of endurance and encouragement give you to, uh, grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory. Of God. Galatians 3. So in Christ Jesus, you're all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, nor slave nor free, nor male or female, nor labor supporter, national supporter, McGillicuddy, serious party supporter, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. There's a unity that transcends our opinion and views politically, and it's the unity that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Therefore, we can hold diverse political opinions, and we do. For the record, we do, I've discovered. Uh, hold, and, and we can be unified in Jesus. What a witness to the world. It's, it's an incredibly important part of our witness. And can I say how proud I am of this church for how we're living that out at the moment. I've been dropping hints about political things for the last month. People have been emailing me and asking me questions, and I've been having so many yarns at every social event I go to. And it's been such an encouragement that we can talk about issues, the referendums, what's happening in the States, about political things, and not see eye to eye and not throw our lollies. 
We can put our big boy undies on or big girl undies on and just be and, and have a maturity. Again, why? Because I'm talking to people that have grasped a vision for the kingdom, who have understand that we can have a unity in Christ. I'm really proud of the way that there can be a mutual affection and love and respect in the diversity of opinion. That's healthy. That's what the church is called to be. And so it's all good. Like even when we talk about the referendums, um, you know, it's like if you disagree with where I land on Christian ethics or you want it, you are welcome here. You don't have to agree with your pastor to belong to this church. We are unified in Christ. We've got to get a lot more clear about what are the hills we're actually prepared to die on. But many of us are dying on hills that are just dumb ones to die on, dividing, getting angry at people over hills that aren't worth dying on. And, and for me, and you're going to work this out for yourself, but for me, nothing's worth the cost of a relationship. Just nothing is worth that cost. Uh, that doesn't mean I'm going to compromise my convictions or whatever, but it's like we've got to lift our walk away point dramatically on this sort of stuff. Now, the only time I do get a little angsty with Christians is when we cross anything to do with the creeds. And when we walk away from the creeds, the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, the great statements of faith, then I'm like, we, we probably can't call you an Orthodox Christian. Like that's that, they were hills that the early church was prepared to die on, literally. Like these are just non-negotiables. And the other thing that gets me a little angsty is when the Sermon on the Mount isn't outworked, and that's where we're seeing a lot of trouble <laughs> these days. That's when it's like, hey guys, and can I encourage you over as we go into the selection cycle? One great thing to do would just be to read the Sermon on the Mount. Just start there in Matthew 6 and just start working your way through the sermon and let it soak into your being so that you're looking at the world through that lens, first and foremost, not through, oh man, we've got to sort this out. St. Augustine said this, uh, in, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. So it's like an, an essentials unity. So like, I mean, it comes to creeds, when it comes to Sermon on the Mount stuff, like essential stuff, unity. Let's be unified on that. On non-essentials, now that will have a different version of what a non-essential is, but still liberty, charity, kindness, you know, and in all things charity, in all things kindness, in all things let's engage well. And so there'll be people in this church who vote differently than you, <laughs> of course, um, and people that will feel equally passionate about whatever you're passionate about but on the opposite side of the argument. And that's okay. That's, this time uh, calls us to be a, a community, have a common unity in Jesus. And so this flows into my last point. So how do we engage with, uh, how do we discuss this stuff? How do we share opinion on all this political stuff? My last point is this, we engage politically with the greatest civility we can muster. We engage politically with the greatest civility we can muster. What does civility mean? Rich Nathan defines it like this. Civility is, is public politeness. It simply means that we display tact, moderation, and good manners towards people who are different than us or with whom we disagree. Civility is not just public, it is in, internal. Civility is a heart commitment in which we want to see other people flourish. Oh, church, let's begin to once more make make civility one of our highest goals. 
that we would just be measured and civil and kind and, uh, and, and well-mannered. Well-mannered, isn't that just a, all these old-fashioned things? Wouldn't it be nice to just go back to being that sort of community that's known as civil and kind? And, um, and so I, I reckon we want to find some heroes of civility, Find some new heroes of civility. Who are the people that you look to where you're like, I want to be like that. That's good. I've got one of my friends, Frank Ritchie, who, um, oh, I didn't mention this. I will say it now. This is terrible. All the, all the good preachers would never do this, but whatever. Um, just a complete side note. One of the things I'd like to do to ha- on this journey is, um, is midweek make some videos where I interview people that, um, that I really respect in terms of biblical knowledge. And so I've, I put this out on Facebook, but if you didn't get it, if anyone wants to ask a question, uh, and I've had a bunch of fantastic questions really reflecting deep engagement with issues, and it can be on anything to do with this sort of stuff, uh, then flick me an email. And if you don't feel comfortable flicking me an email, you can write an anonymous message, uh, a nice one, please, uh, on, uh, the, on our um, website under teaching. I've put a new form up, and it's completely anonymous. It gets spat through to us, but gets, we don't know any details about who sent it. It just comes via our website. And so, because um, one of the guys I'm going to interview with some of these questions is Frank Ritchie, one of my friends who's the um, Wesleyan uh, Methodist minister. He's one of my heroes of civility. He's a media chair. Chaplain, he's a media personality. You'd hate him saying that. He's he's in, he's a go-to, thankfully, for a reasoned Christian voice in the media all the time. His stuff is brilliant, and like I watch him engage with people on Facebook and Twitter every day, and he just gets all his buttons pushed. Like that, just, and he responds with such patience and again civility and kindness, and it's just so encouraging. I'm like, you're one of my heroes of civility, Frank. I want to be like you when I grow up. A guy of recently um, discovered is uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who used to be the chief rabbi for the UK. Uh, Lord, he's a lot of titles now, Lord Rabbi, no, Rabbi Lord or whatever it is, Jonathan Sachs, there's a picture of him up here. Uh, He's just... um, his stuff is brilliant. Now, I, you know, we would, me and Jonathan would disagree around, um, you know, who Jesus is. I think he's the Messiah. He doesn't. Um, and, uh, but he would kick my butt because he's an intellectual genius. So I don't want to go toe-to-toe with Jonathan. But he's friends with Richard Dawkins. He's friends with Richard Dawkins. And I've been listening to stuff of his um, and, uh, and watching him have conversations like one with Richard Dawkins. And, oh, he's my hero of civility. I, want, I, I genuinely, I got a blue suit the other day for a wedding, and now I'm going to get yellow ties because he wears yellow ties all the time. You wait next time. You, and I'm like, because I want to look like him. I love his beard. I love him. I, mean, I just, everything about him so dignified and civil. And we need a bit more of that in the church. We need a bit more of that in our Christianity. Um, I want to play you a clip of a Republican and a Democrat from Rich Nathan's church. And, uh, and this is a great, so this is normally the vibe, right? In, in the States these days, it's become unbelievably divisive. And the reason I've, I've for the first time doing a whole series on this stuff is because I want to call us as a church not to go down that track of division, but to have a unity and to maintain the bond of peace. And Rich Nathan's church, which I'm going to talk about a lot, it's a big church, 8,000 member church, one of the most incredible examples of a healthy countercultural community that live out the kingdom. I've ever seen. Absolutely inspiring. And here's a video of, of two guys in their church from those two different parties. 
Hi, uh, my name's Jack, and I'm a member of the Republican Party here in Franklin County. My name is Drew, and I'm a member of the local Democratic Party. We were drawn together by a, a common community question. And I remember Drew being, as he is even now, I think very well-spoken. Uh, he's an attorney. So I actually felt uh, pretty positively towards Drew at, at our very first meeting. But I really felt that in many respects, those issues kind of transcended some of the political differences. Yes. And um, it made it easy, I think, for all of us to uh, to talk and share ideas. And I think it was an example of that passage in the Bible that talks about whether Jew or Gentile, whether slave or free, whether male or female, uh, whether Republican or Democrat, uh, we're all one in Christ. Uh, Jack, you're really good at acknowledging other people's points, other people's ideas. And, uh, you know, that communicates to the other person that I think we're we're communicating. I think we're understanding mm -hmm. each other. Yeah, Even though we may divert on our, our methodologies or our solutions, we at least have a lot of common uh, uh, a lot of common ground. That's really important. We all want what's best for you know our friends and for our families, for our neighborhood, for our city, and for our nation. And we all share this fundamentally common goal. We get our G's mixed up. We confuse the government with God political structures really can't save the world. So yeah. you have to recognize that Jesus saves, not the government. Okay, yeah. okay love, I love you there Drew. We're done. We're done. I get to say that on camera. It's a lovely example. What a great example of kindness and civility, strong conviction around their, their, where they land on certain things, but a lovely civility and kindness as they talk to one another. I finished with this on, on this, this last point and then a couple of closing thoughts. My friend Frank Ritchie wrote an outstanding article recently, and I want to quote him this morning. He says this, Scripture calls us to be upstanding citizens above reproach, to respect those in authority, including those we disagree with, and not to engage in slander. We are to be agents of peace. We are to be focused on good deeds, not engaging in and spreading controversies. We are to be extremely careful not to be offering or spreading false witness against others, which means that if we are to make accusations, those accusations must be clear and certain, not based on part truths, hearsay, or, or spurious sources. We must speak and act with a clear conscience, avoiding as much as we can speaking and acting in a way that we may later regret. At the end of the day, we are ambassadors for Christ. If we have claimed the title of Christian, then everything we say and do reflects our faith, the church and Christ himself. Do the things we say and do reflect well on him? Do the things we say and do draw others towards him or push others away? Are we acting and speaking with wisdom and humility in a manner that would cause others to respect us and want to listen to us, to hear us and to trust what we have to say even if they end up disagreeing? That is awesome. That should be printed on every bathroom door and just and, and, and it should be your wallpaper on every mobile device that you can you've got social media on to try and just go, hey, hey, you know, we we are we are representing Jesus here. And I must say I've seen one or two comments made by Christians towards our Prime Minister that have been utterly heartbreaking. Utterly, just stuff you would never say to a person that you had a shred of respect for. And, um, and I, I don't think that's good enough. I do want to call us on that. Let's be people that um, uh, represent Christ well. And you know what helps us with that? Is remembering the key cornerstone theology that we believe that everyone is made in the image of God and therefore has infinite value as, and is insanely precious. 
Jacinda Ardern is made in the image of God. Judith Collins is made in the image of God. Donald Trump is made in the image of God. Joe Biden is made in the image of God. That liberal, liberal left-leaning hippie is made in the image of God. That right-leaning, closed-minded, conservative fundamentalist is made in the image of God. You name the person that, that, that racks you up, they're made in the image of God. And you can have your convictions. You can still feel that strongly, but you can communicate with integrity, with peace, with civility, with kindness. And so as we come into land this morning, my three points is that our hope is in the kingdom of God, changing lives and hearts, not a political system. Secondly, that we can be a community of beautiful unity in the midst of diversity. And thirdly, we are called to be a people of civility. That's the three big points. I'm sorry if that's disappointed you in terms of where other places we could have gone this morning, but this is key. We've got to reclaim this space as followers of Jesus. And so there's a number of things I want to call us to this morning. Um, firstly, I, I want to call us to repent. I want to call us to repent. If This is between you and God, but if there's been things, things in your heart or even actions you've done that you're not proud of, mindsets you've had, then I want to call us to repent. I think we need to call the church to repentance in New Zealand for how it has gone about a whole bunch of issues, um, including the abortion one, and I'm going to talk about that in two weeks' time. Like, but there's some repentance that's needed in terms of how we've engaged. Um, I'm pro-life before I get the emails, <laughs> okay? But, but there is a responsibility we have not picked up as the church in terms of how we care for the least and the vulnerable in our community. I want to call us to repent if there's been things that, that we're, we have said or done. Uh, also, I want, us to for, I want to call us to forgive. You know, sometimes you've been really hurt by people that have had strong opinions about certain things in the church, and we're the community of forgiveness. I want to call us to peace, this morning. There's a whole lot of angst and agitation out there. Um, I, I'm not a, you guys know me, those that have been in our church, but I'm not a super spirit guy big time, but I do believe in a political spirit. And so when you start talking about this stuff, you start hitting something very powerful. And, 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 and so it's like, and when we as Christians get pulled into that, it's very confusing and it, it, none of it results in fruit of the spirit stuff. Right? That's a good filter for working out whether it's God's spirit or not. Um, but I want to say, let's come back to that place of peace. Ah, chill. We're going to chill, man. Well, that's another referendum, but we're going <laughs> to... We're not going to chill like that. We're going to chill in the peace of God, which is way better, for the record. Not that I'd know. I want to call us to peace, and I want to call us back to a vision of the kingdom of God. I want to call us back as a church to a vision of the kingdom of God. Take the political thing completely off the table. What do we do to see our nation flourish? Take the political, what do we do? What do you do? What's our part to play as a church in seeing the kingdom of God, which will see people flourish? Isaiah and all the promises we talked about two Sundays ago, that's, that's the vision we want to reclaim. And you have a part to play. And when you find your part to play, it will again chill you out, man. It'll chill you out. It'll really chill you out when you're like, I'm giving my life to see the kingdom advance. rather. Than, and so let's move from a legislative vision of how we can do something in New Zealand to a kingdom vision of how we can do something in New Zealand. And then we're empowered not just by a bunch of people trying to do social work. We're empowered by the 
God who created it all Himself. He sends His Holy Spirit, breathes upon it, and, and watch out world when the church captures this and walks out empowered by the Holy Spirit. And some, I'm going to say this most weeks, some of us, it's like we need to reorientate how we do our jobs. Some of us, we need to be pouring finance into kingdom initiatives. I'm going to be talking about that in the next little while. Some of us need to think about completely destroying our lives for the sake of the kingdom because we catch a vision for how we want to spend our lives and we want to say, I'm just, that's it, I'm working three days a week and now I'm giving two days to, to Marai Nui or to whatever, you know? Okay. I want to give us a moment just to do that and then I'm going to crash land. 